Today, I'm speaking with Emily Oster. Emily is an economist at Brown University and the author of three hugely popular books, Expecting Better, Kripsheet, and The Family Firm, which provide kind of evidence-based insights into pregnancy and early childhood. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Emily. It's really a pleasure to have you. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to, to talk. Doulas. Okay, so it sounds like you very, very, very strongly recommend a doula. I have this association with doulas as being kind of hippie-ish. Um, and I also have this association with you of being super data-driven. Um, yeah, I guess, do you find any tension between being this very kind of data-driven person and the kinds of hippie-ish vibes that doulas seem to give off? So I am driven by data and there is a lot of data <laughs> about doulas. Um, you know, I think you got to find a person who's a good who's a good fit. But I think the reality is that this, this profession, despite like the sort of associations that we all have in our heads, uh, has actually moved in a much less hippie to be way. And, and there's a, you know, like a lot of evidence that this works, even if you assign people random doulas when they arrive at the hospital. So it is a fair amount of, of data there. And it relates to a, a question I think crosses a lot of both pregnancy and childbirth and, and child rearing, which is this sense of people wanting to be a type. Like you want to be like an evidence-based mom, you know, and like evidence-based moms don't have doulas. And I think it's really important that we not hew to those things and that we say, like, I could be a person who, you know, doesn't think breastfeeding is like, is going to try it, but isn't totally wedded to it. And also, but I could become one who co-sleeps, right? I could be a co-sleeping formula feeder. And, you know, that's like not a type we associate. Be like, well, you have to do all the attachment parenting. You got to breastfeed and wear the baby all the time. Because no, you can pick. It's your parenting. You don't have to be a kind of parent. Yes, yes. That really speaks to me. Um, and then just on the specifics of the evidence behind doulas, what kinds of outcomes is it? I think the main thing is C-sections. So this is like a pretty dramatic reduction in the risk of C-sections. And this is, I think, why this matters from a policy standpoint. So we actually see these impacts even if you sort of randomly assign the doula when the person arrives at the hospital, and even if you basically train their friend as a doula. So like, it's not, I mean, that's not as good as having somebody who's been around births before, but they're just the idea of like a support person mm. being there is really important. It seems to reduce the C-section risk. It reduces the use of epidural actually. So there's a bunch of pieces of this. And it turns out, and this is something you know, I've talked to policymakers about, it actually would be cost-effective for Medicaid to pay about $1,300 for every doula, for everyone to have a doula, everyone on Medicaid, because that is the money saved from having a doula in terms of like C-sections are much more expensive, all this kind of stuff. So this is like a case in which it's like, there's just like free money on the table. Doula doesn't cost $1,300, right. like no, no chance. I mean, some places, but not most of the places. It's an example of something where I just don't understand why we're not doing it. And it's <laughs> right. got to be the answer is the patriarchy, but I'm not sure what aspect of the patriarchy. Like, right, what the mechanism is. is. What's, the, what's the patriarchy mechanism there? I know that that's the answer. Got it. And then what exactly is the mechanism by which the doula is reducing those risks? Is it something like they're like you can do it. I'm going to coach you through X. I think it's hard to tell. So I think some of it is like, you know, coaching through changes in position. Some of it is kind of a general encouragement. There's like, there's some specific stuff around sort of moving around that might matter, but I'm not sure we have, like, I'm not sure there's something you could, you could sort of point to and say, it's this. C-sections. 
a lot of people really want to have a vaginal birth. And yeah, maybe you can start by saying, why is that so important to so many people? I don't know why it's so important to so many. <laughs> it's an interesting question. Um, I can. I think we can talk about why that would be sort of from a doctor's standpoint, like that would be the outcome that they were that they were hoping for. Um, and I think the answer there is that the the recovery in the short term is on average much easier from a vaginal birth than from a C-section. So a vaginal birth, you know, the it's not major surgery. I mean, you can have a very long recovery, so there's a range. Um, but a C-section is major abdominal surgery. It limits your mobility initially. There's a reason people spend four days rather than two days in the hospital. You know, it's it's kind of, you're guaranteed somewhat of a complicated recovery in a way that for vaginal birth, you may, you may get a very complicated recovery, but I drove us home from the hospital after my first kid. Like there's a range of, of kind of ease of vaginal delivery that doesn't, isn't there for C-sections. Interestingly, the outcome, the long-term outcomes for kids and, and mom from those two are the same. There's really nothing in the data that would distinguish them, hmm. except if you want to have many more children, there are added complications in later pregnancies from a C-section and in particular from multiple C-sections. So if you said, my goal is to have five kids, it's actually really complicated to have five C-sections. Um, so that's a place where having a vaginal birth is going to make it possible to do this more because there are placental complications in later in later pregnancies uh, that become much more common if you've had C-section. So in some sense, like that choice and sort of that desire or that preference for vaginal birth, a lot of it is effectively rooted in like what's going to set you up better for future pregnancies. Interesting. Okay. I didn't know that. And that does feel really relevant to me. I have this really intense fear of vaginal birth. It just sounds like it's going to be so painful. My mom had a lot of vaginal tearing during her vaginal birth, and I'm just terrified. And part of me is like, hmm, a C-section. I've had a surgery before. Maybe maybe I can just do that and not have all that pain in the immediate uh, in the immediate kind of experience of it. Yeah. Well, one thing is that an epidural is pretty effective. Um, <laughs> so definitely you don't seem like a person who wants an unmedicated birth. <laughs> I don't. And I think that what you describe, the sort of fear of birth, I guess, is quite real and is quite common and is not very widely discussed. Mm. So it's an interesting example of something where like you sort of the world kind of expects you to be like, what I'm really hoping is to give birth in the tub and to be pulling my own baby out when they're crowning and to be able to be like, are you kidding me? Do you know where it comes out of? Like, I want to be asleep. And then I want you to hand me my baby after you clean me up like the 1950s. Like, where is my twilight sleep option for this? Because it sounds terrible. And I think that's a very, that's a very common fear that we don't almost like don't allow enough of in, in the world where you're supposed to talk about this as some kind of magical thing. I will say in the moment, like with many things, parenting, it, it kind of seems more normal than you have like some time to work up to it. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Can you say more about that? I'm, I'm curious. I think it might help me to hear. I, because I do just, um, it's true that I don't feel like I've heard many people talk about the fear of it. I think I've heard, I've heard loads of people talk about what the experience of being pregnant is like. I've heard lots of people talk about their childbirth kind of after the fact. And usually uh, by then there's a kind of magic about it. Oh, you've forgotten. Yes, totally. <laughs> exactly. Right. And I think with one exception, I haven't really heard anyone say, I'm terrified about how painful and how 
long I'm going to be in pain for. I think part of the reason you don't hear that is because our pain relief options are really good. Okay. That's reassuring. So actually, like, I I think the, you know, for almost everybody, you ramp that epidural up, like, you're good. Like, I mean, not that it's not uncomfortable, there's pressure and so on, but this kind of intense, the the sort of pain of an unmedicated childbirth is like, you can turn a lot of that off. There's also a fair amount of adrenaline and forgetting, mm-hmm. you know, which I don't, it's like, there's some self-preservation there. Sure. The impact of kids on women's careers. When we talk about a wage gap, you sort of have in your mind, well, like two people with the same job and one of them gets paid less. So the straight up kind of discrimination story. And that happens some. Um, probably a much bigger part. And again, these things are hard to separate in the data, but on it's likely that a much larger part of what we see as a gender wage gap is basically a gender seniority gap. So I'll give you a very concrete example. In academia, a bunch of research universities in the last year or so have tried to figure out like what a gendered male and female professor wages look like. And when you do that, you find that women get paid less. A hundred percent of that is about differences in rank and the fact that women are less likely to be full professors or they have been full professors for less time. It's much more strongly true in the older generation where basically women were promoted more slowly or whatever. And you could say, well, some of that in the past was about discrimination. It's a very reasonable view. But the reality is that all of the gap is explained by things you can see about seniority. Right. And so I think that's true in a lot of these spaces, right? You're a, you're an associate at a law firm. You take some time off. It takes longer to get to partner. You know, so even if you are a partner, you haven't been a partner for as long, or you've been a you've kind of been promoted in a different in a different way. There's this idea of the mommy track. There are a lot of a lot of reasons why wages are different. Probably most of which are about differences in things you could see. And again, I want to emphasize that doesn't mean they're not discrimination. It's just if you want to look for a discrimination explanation for that, you need to sort of go back to to kind of why this happened in the first place. Does the difference widen over time? Does it shrink over time? Does it stay the same? It widens. It widens. It widens. Really. I mean, it, wi- it sort of widens the most and then it sort of uh, kind of like stays about the same. I mean, again, like if you look at the time path of people's wages, eventually they, they stagnate um, or growth stops. And at that point, there's not as much space for widening. And yeah, I guess the story about ours makes sense to me about how much harder it is to um, to go half time, but still pursue kind of the same levels of seniority. Are there other things going on? Like, is some of it just choice? Are some women choosing to take on less responsibility because uh, they would prefer to trade off a more senior role for more time with their kids? Totally. I mean, and I think that's, there's like, Yes, some people choose. I mean, it's and, it, and it's an interesting policy question because when we say, you know, we want to have more women with kids in the workforce, which is something that gets expressed a lot, I think we want to think about there might be two reasons you might leave the workforce when you have kids. One is that you might not want to be in the workforce anymore. And like, that's a completely reasonable, appropriate preference that some people have. And we wouldn't want to say like, let's force everyone to work if they would prefer to work at home by taking care of their kids, which is also, by the way, a job that's quite hard. (laughs) 
Then there's a second piece, which is people who basically would want to maintain a foot in the workforce or would prefer and that to work, but are kind of something else is keeping them out of the workforce. And I, I would put in that category the recognition that some people would like to work less for not four months, but like several years, right? And I think one of the one of the biggest challenges, I think, when we think about sort of further developing, you know, women's role in leadership positions in the workforce is to recognize that there may be periods in which people want to be less engaged. And it would be a shame to lose that human capital for that period. And so I think thinking about you know, we know from the data that women prefer, like women put more value on flexible work arrangements if they have small children. There was a recent Brookings report that showed the labor force participation rate for women, like college-educated women with children under five, is the highest it has ever been post-pandemic. And that is because those people are able to work remotely. And the value of being able to work remotely when you have little kids is really high. And so thinking about, you know, well, some of those people we really want to keep in the workforce and being able to keep them. And then, you know, eventually your kid's going to middle school and they don't care about you anymore. And, you know, you have time to work more. So I really, you know, I, I talk a lot about this and I think it's really important to, to sort of think about how we can provide the kinds of flexibility that people need in the, in the short term. Kids are a marathon. People spend so much time thinking about the first two years. Hmm. Like before you, and of course, like that's what's in your mind, right? Before you have a kid, it's like, okay, and I'm going to need to be there for breastfeeding. I'm going to need to be there, this and this and this. And like, yeah, okay, those things are important, are important. If you talk to people with older kids, like one of the things they will often say is like, I was really substitutable when my kids were babies. Like, yeah, I provided breast milk, but like fundamentally, like they were happy to sleep, like, there were many, many people who could serve the needs of my kids when they were babies. There are many fewer people who can serve the needs of my kids now. And like, as your kids get older, I think for many of us, the stakes feel a little higher and the value of being there feels almost greater than it did. And I think that's both important to recognize because you don't want to conceive it as like, there's going to be two years of investment and then like basically they'll be, I'll be done. Like they're going to like some English boarding school, you know, like it's like the need for yeah. you is not going to disappear. But also in those first years, there's a lot of people who are substitutable. Interesting. Yeah. I, I feel like I am again, one of the people who needed to hear that. I think I have some like, yeah, I've got to prepare for the sprint of the first two years and then somehow it gets easier, but it is a marathon. It's a marathon. Mm. And the first two years, like those are kind of like, you're kind of slow, you know, you're not picking up the pace. It's like the, I'm in the middle of training for a marathon. So I really have a lot of uh, this in my head now. It's right. like, those are the, those, you keep it controlled. Keep it controlled <laughs> those first couple miles because, you know, it's getting, getting hard in the last 10K. It's hard. Right. Interesting. Okay. Well, that is frightening to me. <laughs> um, that makes this feel a bit harder to prepare for, especially because I think yeah, preparing for a sprint sounds easier to me than preparing for how to have a productive career while raising kids when it's actually a marathon. Evidence on childcare. So basically the childcare choices that you make, um, either choices about whether to work or not, even the choices about what to do with your kid, you know, during during the day, for the most part, 
those don't really impact their test scores very much in any in any direction. So, you know, some of these things may be a little bit positive or a little bit negative. Actually, the sort of stay-at-home, stay-at-not-stay-at-home parent stuff is pretty minor. So none of these things are very big. Like, even when you have effects, which are, we could argue, are almost always overstated because they're really correlations, they're not really causal, we don't have any randomized data. Like, even those numbers are so small, for the most part, that you really wouldn't they wouldn't be an important part of a consideration set. Wow. Okay. They're that small. Yeah. Are there exceptions? Are there like types of, I don't know, childcare or like uh, an amount of time a child might spend at home alone uh, that do make a difference? You can't leave your baby home alone. That's not allowed. I mean, there are some, I mean, you sort of look at, at childcare and people ask me like, you know, is daycare good or daycare bad? Like, uh, low quality daycare does seem to show up sort of negatively. And, and by low quality, I mean, you know, the kids are not safe um, or like they're not getting any attention. So like, which is unfortunately characteristic of some childcare settings. Um, but beyond that, there isn't something where you'd say like, this is the worst childcare structure. Uh-huh. And so, there are small differences, but but really they are really so small that you wouldn't think they'd be yeah. particularly important considerations. Basically, like child, you know, like group daycare improves cognitive performance a bit. Maybe it worsens behavior a little bit. Both effects are pretty small. Okay. You know, parents like having one parent be part-time sometimes shows up in test score data as a positive, but probably that's just about correlation and about what kind of families are. You know, and again, it's all very complicated because if people are working, they have more income and income buy stuff. And so, I don't know. Yeah, it's just surprising. And I think I do want to push on it, even though I just totally believe you. But um, I think I want to push on it because I have this feeling that um, society tells me that like my child going to the best possible preschool or daycare um, during their early years, it's incredibly important. And there are like... 12 to 18 month waiting lists for like preschools for like eight months old. Like, is that really all or like a lot of that? Is that really mostly hype? Yeah. What actually makes a difference in young kids' lives? There are two things that I think are simultaneously true, but hard to hold in your head at the same time. So one is that most of the choices the individual choices that you are going to make about your kid when they're little do not matter at all. So most of like whether you choose to breastfeed or sleep train or not sleep train or whether they go to the Montessori preschool or whether they go to the preschool down the street that has the like Reggio Amelia, these things, the effects, they are so small that they are very, very unlikely to matter. It's also true that the experience that kids have between zero and three is probably the most important that they will ever have to set them up for a life of success. And by the time you get kids at three, the difference between you know, kids who are raised in poverty and kids who are not, it's already there. You can read like Eva Moskowitz has a really nice thing in her book about the block achievement gap. The idea that when you get kids, when she gets kids at kindergarten, the kids who have grown up with fewer resources are not building block towers up. When she has them play with blocks, they build flat. And the kids who are raised with more resources are building up. And so there's so much that happens before five. And yet these things that you're like, you know, how do I pick the preschool? This one has the master's degree. It's like that's a completely effing irrelevant. 
And the answer is that there are things that are relevant, and they are having a stable place to come home to, having some loving caregiver who is paying attention to you, could be a daycare provider, can be a nanny, can be a parent, can be another parent, can be a grandparent. It's like having somebody that feels stable or seven people who feel stable, having enough to eat every day, having enough sleep, having access to childcare, not being exposed to abuse and trauma and toxic stress. That's the whole thing. And the thing is, you're not asking about those things because you're not, that's not a thing you're thinking about choosing. That's already something your kid is going to have because of the privilege of where they're going to be born into. And so I think it's like, that feels to me so important because we spend all this time in policy space. The people making the policy are spending all of this time in their heads with like these decisions that feel really fraught, but actually are completely irrelevant. And we've sort of missed that there are things we could impact with policy by having better paid leave for everybody, by having better childcare subsidies, by giving people like, by like all of those things we could be mattering for. And those things really do matter. And yet we're not talking about them because they seem so obvious to the sets of people who are like making the policy. Mm -hmm. Thank you for coming to my TED talk. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. No, it's great. It's very compelling and and reassuring. Again, I do feel like a really big part of me believes you and another part of me is like, oh, but I have so many stories about like, I don't know, people remembering that their parents worked super, super late and like felt sad or neglected by that. I mean, I also think like, you're going to find, it was really got to be careful with anecdote because you're also going to find people who are like, well, my mom, you know, quit her job so she could be home every minute with me. And then I was the repository for all of her failed dreams. And I wish she had had a job. So she wasn't like constantly on me about how like I had to, you know, be like, so, I mean, I think it's, it's tricky. Like many people don't like their upbringing. And one of the features of humans is that we're always trying to like fix the stuff, right? you know, that we feel that our parents messed up. And so I think we do want to be a little bit careful about, and similarly, I will tell you when you have your kids, like my son, the other day, I told him I wasn't, I walk my kids to school almost every day. I'm home for dinner every single night. I rarely travel. I like really, I spend a lot of time with them. The other day I told my son that, that I would see him in the morning, but I wasn't going to be able to walk into school because I was going on my long run and I wanted to leave early enough to whatever. And he told me, do you care about your long run more than you care about me? Oh, God. So no matter how much time you spend with your kids, sometime they'll ask you that. And the thing is, as a, would you have to have the fortitude as a parent to be like, I love you more. I would choose you over running. But for tomorrow, I care more about my long run than I do about you. And so you'll have to walk to school by yourself. Yeah. Okay. I think I am. I think you're right. It totally uh, sounds consistent with what I what I actually think about these anecdotes that uh, most people have complaints about their childhood. And mostly when people uh, have like really, really strong complaints, it is because things have gone more wrong at the level uh, that you're talking about with like stability and like basic needs being met or not. I guess, yeah, I'm curious if there is anything else that might matter besides those basic things. Not spanking your kids. Okay. No physical punishment. Reading reading shows up, reading to your kids, talking to them, but not like talking in an obsessive, weird way where you have to like narrate every diaper change. But we do see it's probably something like the number of words kids hear tend to show up. Mm-hmm. Those are kind of it. 